Good morning, everyone. So um, I've been keeping a secret from you guys. It's not a dark secret. Don't worry. Um, But it's one of those things I've kind of like kept to myself because it's something that feels a little tenuous and a little vulnerable. You know, it's something that I've felt at like a whole lot. And so it would be totally fair for me to tell you all what this is and for you to like roll your eyes and write me off and say a good hearty Kentucky, bless her heart. Uh, But I, Laura Vincent, the dark angel of death to plants, I have kept a plant alive for over a month, okay? Which is like a record by at least 20 days. It's miraculous. Who knew like watering a plant like could have such an impact, right? Mind blowing. But whenever we were in the Holy Land, I fell in love with olive trees. And so I decided that I had to have one. Um, To start with, you know, if you look at these trees, they're quite beautiful. Um, They just like were all over the landscape there. But beyond the beauty of these trees, um, which would have been enough for me to want one, but beyond that, you know, these trees are also just like very useful. They're, They're very productive trees. How many of you here like to eat olives? Got some olive lovers here in the room, all right? Yeah, like the the fruit of these trees is good to eat. Um, But the people who live there in that region, they not only eat the olives that grow on these trees, they they press them to get absolutely as much as they possibly can out of them. Um, They press them the first time, and that's where we get our extra virgin olive oil that we cook with, which is good stuff. I use it like every day. Um, And then they're not done yet. They press it again, and the oil that comes out this time is still good for cooking. It's not that high quality as as extra virgin olive oil, but it's usable. But then they're still not finished. They go back and they press the oil yet again. And this time the oil that comes out, they use it uh, to do things like make soap or to uh, light lamps. Even then though, they're not done with this fruit. They'll take all the pits that have been pressed and all the other stuff that's remaining and they'll shape it into like balls and they'll let it dry up. And then they use what's left over from pressing the olives uh, by taking those balls and throwing it into the fire during the winter months to keep their homes warm. So like absolutely none of the olives are wasted. Um, But the olive trees are not just used for their fruits. They also um, have this rich, beautiful, hard wood. It has all these beautiful markings within it. And so the wood is used to to make things like furniture, um, to beautiful carvings. Um, It's used to make kitchen utensils and, um, of course, souvenirs for travelers like us, right? Like I brought a few. This is the um, manger scene that I got, the nativity. Um, Carla got something very fancy. This is a beautiful Jerusalem cross that she got made in Bethlehem. We got to go down in the workshop and like see the the people making these things um, there at the shop. Um, But it's gorgeous, gorgeous wood. So um, these trees, again, it's very useful to the people that live in this region. Um, But it's not just useful to them. It's also meaningful. The olive tree carries this symbolic meaning for them. Um, Maybe you've heard this. I'm sure you have. 
have in the midst of conflict and chaos, we'll say something. We'll say we're going to extend an olive branch, right? It's a way of saying that, that we're seeking to make peace. And that actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament story of Scripture. Um, one of the earliest stories we have of Noah. You remember the flood comes up on the earth and there's all this chaos. There's all this conflict that happens. But finally, Noah sends out a dove and the dove comes back with what? An olive branch. And that was the sign to Noah and his fellow travelers that there was peace on earth, that it was okay for them to come out. So we have this powerful symbol in the olive tree. It's beautiful. It's useful. But to be honest with you guys, none of those are the reasons that I fell in love with an olive tree. The reason I fell in love with an olive tree is because olive trees are resilient. Olive trees, legend says, never fully die. You like can't kill them, which I always like a good challenge. So I'll get back to you on that. We'll see if it is possible. But our God stressed to us over and over and over again that even when it looks like an olive tree is done, it is dead and gone. There is no hope for it at all. That even then you can take a shoot from this tree and plant it and have new life come again. You can never count an olive tree out. And that might sound like a bit of an overstatement, but olive trees are indeed some of the oldest trees that are standing on earth. There are some that stand over 4,000 years old, and um, they grow in places where really nothing else can grow. They're able to grow in this very rocky and, and poor soil, which is actually the very thing that makes them so resilient. Because um, as they're, they're um, planted down in their, their, their branches and their trunks, sure, they, they might die. They might become hollow and, and, and rot or whatever, but the roots, they're sheltered there. They're down in that rocky soil and nothing can get to those roots. Sure, mold might try to attack. Sure, there might be wars that rage around that tree. There might be storms that come, but the rocks protect those roots that just keep sending up those new shoots over and over and over again. In fact, it's been said that you can actually cut an olive tree completely down, dig up the roots, go and replant them somewhere, and it will grow again. Olive trees are resilient which makes them the perfect witnesses to the story that we are looking at today. We have been following Jesus all around the, the um, Holy Land. Um, I have a map of all the places where we have been up to this point. Last week, we were up in the Galilee region around the sea, and uh, we learned that that's where a lot of Jesus's ministry happened, right? But eventually, uh, Jesus is going to have to make his way back down toward Jerusalem, where we have the star today, Jerusalem, which was the center of the Jewish world. Jesus had already told his disciples, hey, like there's going to be this time when I'm going to need to go to Jerusalem and the son of man must suffer and die there and then rise again. But suffice to say, like all of that's going right over the disciples' head. Um, that's why I heard someone say this week that they're called the duh disciples, right? Like they keep missing the stuff that Jesus is saying to them. But 
But to their credit, you know, their vision is clouded because they have this understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do and what the Messiah is supposed to look like. They've heard how the Messiah is supposed to come and he's supposed to be an earthly king. He's supposed to overthrow Rome and take his seat on the throne. And so as the disciples and Jesus made their way into Jerusalem, the disciples must have been excited because it sure seemed like everything was going according to plan. People are greeting Jesus and his disciples as they're coming into the city. They're putting down their cloaks. They're waving palm branches. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. As Jesus is riding on a donkey, being given a royal welcome. However, any joy that Jesus must have felt in that moment was soon gone. It soon became sorrow as he made his way through that parade and came over a ridge to the place that is called the Mount of Olives. This is what the Mount of Olives looks like today. From the Mount of Olives, you can see the whole of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus would have stood there looking out over it, able to see the temple where God's presence dwelt with his people. You can see in this picture the the dome, the gold dome there. That's the Dome of the Rock. It's a mosque today, but that is the spot where, where the temple once would have been. And as Jesus took that site in, it stopped him in his tracks and it moved him to tears. He wept as he looked at the city. Because he knew the devastation. He knew the destruction that was going to come there. I got just like a small taste of that sorrow as we stood there in this spot on our trip a little over a month ago. Uh, We had planned to finish our trip there in Jerusalem. We're going to spend a couple days seeing all the things. And uh, we were on our way into Jerusalem. They had planned a surprise, you all. They were going to take us to like an American restaurant. It had hamburgers, and my dad was really excited because he was done with hummus, right, Dad? You were done with the hummus. Um, And uh, the theme of the restaurant was, it was Elvis themes, all right? And so they were like super jazzed up to take us to this restaurant. But as we were coming into the city, two missiles got through the defense system, and um, they didn't hit the city directly. They were out beyond it, but it was close enough to cause concern. And so we didn't get to stop for hamburgers. They took us to the hotel where there was shelter. um, And they decided that they would um, evacuate us um, to get us out of of the country the next morning to go into Jordan. But while we were there, they're like, you got time to go to one place. And the one place that they took us was the Mount of Olives. And it was kind of eerie standing there uh, because earlier in the day, you know, there had been the bomb sirens. And so lots of people were staying indoors. They were staying safe. Usually you would go and like the old city would be bustling with people and there was like no one there. It was a ghost town. And so while we were standing up there on the Mount of Olives, it was us, our team and CNN reporters. And that was it. No one else was up there. But as I stood there, I couldn't help but be overcome by sorrow, you know, overcome uh, by sorrow for all that's happened there in that city. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. Um, It's been besieged 23 times. It's been captured 44 times. It's been attacked 52 times. There has just been so much, so much conflict there. And to be standing there knowing that war was raging yet again, it was a lot to take in. 
I was overcome by sorrow, but Jesus, he wept there. And then after he'd taken his time to mourn, he made his way into the city. And while he was there, he would spend his days teaching in the temple. But Luke 21, 37 tells us this. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And so, you know, there's these other instances in Scripture where Jesus, he'll be like with the crowds, he'll be teaching, he'll be performing miracles. And then what does he do? He goes up on a mountain to pray by himself. That happened last week, right? Whenever he walked out on the water, before he walked out, he was up on that hill, on that mountain, praying by himself. In Jerusalem, that place was the Mount of Olives. It was a place of refuge for him. But then came Thursday night, and this was the time for the Passover feast. So he sat down, he enjoyed a last meal with his disciples, and then he rose up and he made the about 15-minute journey from the, the upper room to the Mount of Olives like he usually did. But this time, he doesn't go alone. His disciples, they follow him. In just two or three hours, Jesus, he'll be betrayed and he will be arrested in this very location. But first, he has come for a very specific purpose, and that is to pray. There's a church that's been built over the spot where it's believed all of this took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the Church of Agony or the Church of All Nations because a lot of nations contributed to its building. Um, but as you're, you're there, it's designed to kind of take you back to that fateful night. You stand outside, you see this door, and you move from daylight of the, uh, 2023 into the night in the first century. Overhead is a starry night. And along the walls, you can see pictures of all that, that played out there. But at the very front, there is um, an altar. And at the center of it all is the place where Luke says this happened. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is the stone that they believe Jesus prayed upon that night. They let you like reach out and touch it. It feels like it should be forbidden, right? But you can, that's Carla's hand reaching out and touching that stone. But in this place, Jesus wrestled. Jesus was in agony. He knew what was about to happen. He knew in just moments that he's about to be slandered and misrepresented. He knows that he's about to be arrested and condemned. He knows he's about to be abandoned by his own disciples. He knows he's about to be flogged and beaten and mocked. And after all that, that he is going to suffer the most excruciating of all deaths. He had talked to his disciples about this cup that he must drink from, the cup representing calamity and death, his crucifixion. But now, here in the garden, we hear Jesus asking God to take this cup from him. It's one of those moments in Scripture that sometimes makes us squirm a little bit. We're not sure what to do with Jesus in this moment because, you know, is Jesus supposed to struggle with this decision for us, right? Like, isn't this why he came to lay down his life for ours? 
all too often this part of the story, it gets rushed over and glossed over because we kind of tend to see Jesus as if he is God pretending to be a person. As if he is on this autopilot mission, as if he's mechanically going through these motions to to perfectly play out his game plan. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus was fully human, just as much as he was divine. He felt all the things that we feel. He has felt joy and sorrow and peace and pain and delight and disappointment, something that I think should give us such encouragement. Because when we are struggling to face the hard thing that is in front of us, we can know that Jesus has been there. He has done that. He himself knows the anguish that it can bring to the point that Luke will say later that Jesus actually sweats drops of blood. It's a picture of an athlete who's giving like absolutely everything that they've got to compete in in the games, in the competition. And so let's not rush past this today. Let's put ourselves in Jesus's shoes for just a moment as he is there praying on the Mount of Olives. I mean, is it any wonder that he is questioning whether or not he wants to drink from this cup? What would you be feeling in this moment knowing what is about to unfold? What person would not dread this hurt and this shame. In all actuality and logistically, Jesus could have very, very easily slipped away in that moment. Luke tells us that he's a stone's throw away from his disciples. It's at night. They can't even really see him there, right? But what we need to understand is that there at the Mount of Olives, if you just continue right on over that ridge, you are in the Judean desert. You are in the wilderness. You are in the place place where people went to hide. In fact, whenever David is overthrown by his son Absalom, whenever his son takes away his throne, where does it say David goes? It says he goes over the Mount of Olives for him to go and hide. And so it would have been super easy for Jesus to just disappear into the darkness. And let's just be honest here. Whenever we face hard things, we kind of tend to want to do the same thing, right? When we face hard things, it's very tempting for us to run into the deserts of, of silence whenever tough words need to be spoken. It's very easy for us to go and hide ourselves in the wilderness of withdrawal whenever the situation calls for comfort, confrontation. It's very easy for us to sh- shelter ourselves in denial when we need to acknowledge the truth and move forward. Jesus was likely tempted <laughs> To do the same thing. However, Jesus prays these words instead. He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, instead of running away and hiding in this moment, he is committed to doing this hard thing with God. He is committed to to talking with God about what they're doing together and aligning his heart with his And in this moment, God, he shows up in this special way to to just tangibly remind Jesus that he is not facing this alone in this moment. He sends an angel and the angel strengthens him. 
And that's when Luke writes what I've heard called the most important word or words in this whole story. Luke says, when he, Jesus, rose from prayer and went back to the disciples. Other translations say he returned. Instead of going over the ridge into the darkness of hiding in the desert, he goes back. He returns to do the hard thing that is in front of him. But I want you to notice something important. He does not go back to face it by himself. Not only does he go back knowing that God is with him, he goes back to the disciples. Sure, they are sleeping. Bless their hearts, right? But they're human. And they've been through a lot. And Jesus, he keeps talking about how he's going to die. And grief is hard. They're tired. But they're still there. They're still going to stand up. And they're going to be right beside Jesus when he is arrested just minutes later. Y'all, even Jesus did not face hard things by himself relationships. They are at the heart of resilience. You know, just like the branches and the trunk of a, of an olive tree might face pests and storms. We are going to face difficult stuff. You know, hard things are going to afflict us. That is a given, but similar to the rocky soil that, that protects the roots of that tree, that, that makes it possible for that new life to shoot up again and again and again, our relationships with God and with one another, what they do is they protect our hearts. They shelter that essential part of who we are, that goodness that God has placed in us so that even when we get knocked down, we can rise back up. Y'all, this is a very silly and not very consequential example, but you know um, how they say not to pray for patience because God is like going to give you a situation in which you have to work on it. Well, um, I learned this week that the same is true for resilience. I sat down and I started writing this sermon and I was a little over halfway done and um, I was getting ready to just like be done for the night and I um, turned my head to take care of something. My laptop's in front of me and I turned my head back around just in time to see my computer shutting down from out of nowhere. And despite the fact that Word is supposed to autosave every ten minutes, whenever my computer came back on, like there was nothing y'all. I dug in all the places. I looked everywhere and that sermon was completely gone. <laughs> I'll be really honest. I was tired and I did not want to restart. <laughs> I did not want to go back over the same ground where I had been. I just didn't want to do it. But instinctually, what is the first thing that I did? I picked up my phone and I texted the other Greenwood staff here, which I'm letting everybody in on it today. Our text thread name is the Greenwood Gangsters. So I texted the Greenwood Gangsters and I said to them, uh, y'all, this is what happened. And what did they do? They lament with me, right? And then they laugh at me because that's how we show love. And, and just like knowing that though, like hearing from them, it was enough, right? It was enough to remember, like, I'm a part of this thing that's bigger than me. That I've got other people with me in this. It was enough for me to open back up my computer and start over again. Relationships are at the heart of resilience, 
Last week at 9 o'clock, um, Nana Pearson, if you don't know Miss Nana, you need to. She's super cool. She's always greeting at the door at 9 o'clock, and she pulled me aside, and she uh, said, Laura, could you have everyone pray for me today? And, you know, can you do it where they all come and they, like, lay hands on me? And um, I said, sure. And just so you all know, if you come to me and you ask me that, yes. Miss Nina, um, she was going to have surgery last week to remove a tumor and uh, was very, very anxious about it. They actually ended up delaying the surgery. It'll be on December 4th. But um, we came up here and we, we laid hands on her. We prayed over her. And she told us, like, afterwards, she's like, this peace just came over me. She said, um, because, like, I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew that there were all these people who cared for me and all these people who were praying for me and that even though, even though it was going to be hard, that I could do it. That's what it's about, you guys. Relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other, they are at the heart of resilience. We can do hard things together. Those relationships, they help us not only just like overcome adversity and survive, but they help us to thrive. You know, that night in the garden, not only did Jesus have um, God and the disciples with him, do you know who else was standing with him that night in the garden? The olive trees. (laughs) And did you know that some of those same olive trees are still standing in that garden today? This this tree in particular, they let us touch it too. Um, It's well over 2,000 years old. And it and the others stand there as this reminder, this living reminder of what Jesus showed us so powerfully that night. The resilience of walking toward hardship, knowing that he was about to get knocked down, but that he would rise again. What about you? Is there a hard thing that is on the horizon Is there a thing that you have been hiding from? Is there a thing you've been trying to face all by yourself? If so, today I want to invite you to come and to join Jesus in the garden. Um, You're invited to come to the front and to pray at the prayer rails um, and to just get honest with God. Jesus got very honest with God there in the garden. Tell him what's on your heart and allow him to strengthen you. But as you come to pray, entire congregation, what I want to invite you to do is if you feel led, if you see someone up here praying, I want you to come and just place your hand on them. You don't have to say a word out loud. You can just silently pray to yourself, but allow your hand to be that reminder as you're silently praying for them that that not only is God with them, but that we're with them and that we can do hard things together. Let's pray as we prepare to come. Jesus, we are so grateful that you get us. We're so grateful that you were willing to leave the glory of heaven to come and to experience life with us as one of us. We're so grateful that, that you, you meet us in the midst of our anguish rather than shying away or telling us to get over it or to just walk it off. But you show up and you sit with us there. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would come and sit with us in our gardens today, that you would come and make your presence known in those places where we are hurting, in those places where we need strength, in those places where we need the courage to keep moving forward. 
May we experience your presence in a powerful way through one another today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.